the optimal life. So you say the greatest achievement of mankind may well be the suppression of dopamine. What does that mean? Well, it's complicated, so we have to take a step back. Uh, dopamine is a reward chemical, like Pavlovian uh, reward. When you do something that evolution favors, like uh, finding a mate, uh, gaining food, fighting off a predator, you get a dollop of dopamine. It's a reward for doing something evolutionarily uh, favored. But once we got language, we could make those decisions for ourselves. We didn't really need that dopamine dollop, although we still have it. And what we did was suppress dopamine in certain tracts of the brain that we couldn't suppress it before. Prior to language, we could suppress dopamine in the motor tract, which is called the nigrostriatal. But once we got language, we could suppress dopamine in the mesolimbic, mesocortical tracts. And I think that's exactly what happened. And with the suppression of dopamine, we get ego enhancement. We are able to gate out unwanted uh, thoughts. And our thought process progresses from primitive to more adult thinking, which is reality-based, whereas primitive thought process is unreality-based. So all of this happens with language, and each of us repeats the process as we grow up from childhood through adolescence, and we suppress dopamine during that time. That's a key feature of mental health, and most of us do it well. But what happens with mental illness is that there's some of us that don't do it as well, and when, when it all unravels, there's a huge surge of desuppressed dopamine and that's why we need to use these dopamine blockers for um, schizophrenic patients. But isn't dopamine, if I'm understanding what you're saying, I always was under the belief that dopamine is good for the brain. And it sounds as if you're saying the opposite. Am I following? Yeah, well, dopamine is good for the brain and that uh, it feels good to do things that boost our security and our ability to procreate. And we still have that. But this is kind of on a different level where we made a wholesale suppression of dopamine in these two tracts. And that was a key ingredient in the benefits of language. You know, language revolutionized the way we use our brains. Uh, once we got language, we wiped out all the other species of Homo, the genus Homo, uh, by 10,000 BC. We fanned out across the globe, and now we own the world. So this was a radical change in our brain functioning, and it involves the suppression of dopamine. But that doesn't eliminate that reward chemical that makes us feel good when we do uh, positive things for ourselves. So when you say that language has, uh, I want to dig into this a little bit because I'm, I'm going to admit this is um, beyond my pay grade. For sure. So when you say language has um, really suppressed the the dopamine effect, how so? What is it about language? What is it about our words and, and verbal that that's doing that? Well, it's the process of uh, acquiring language that requires it. You know, if you think about how a child, a child's thought processes work. They're somewhat disorganized. They say things that don't always make sense. 
you know, the child will say, uh, you know, the moon is a big fat man that will eat you. And we kind of pat him on the head and chuckle. Uh, their thought processes are more primitive and disorganized. And gradually, as we learn language, which is accompanied by conscious thought, we could never participate in our thought processes prior to learning language. This dopamine suppression, um, in a sense, coagulates and complexifies our mind so that we can now have a clear mind space. Our ego is enhanced, which is a sense of identity, our ability to uh, gate out unwanted thoughts and impulses improves. All of this improves with uh, dopamine suppression. Now, don't forget, this is my theory. Now, this isn't everybody's theory, but I believe it holds tremendous validity. And then you say that the issue arises later on in life where you said something about de-suppressed thoughts come, come out like a, a a whirlwind is the way I was taking your language to what you were saying. So what mm. do you mean by that? De-suppressed thoughts now come out like crazy at some point. Well, what I'm saying is that every single mental illness uh, involves on one, one uh, level or another the de-suppression of dopamine, with schizophrenia being the prime example. So that when dopamine de-suppresses and flows back, and we see this also with psychedelics, same process, de-suppression of dopamine, then this primitive organization that we had prior to language reasserts itself. And it all falls apart. There's everything we've learned you know, over the past 50,000 years of evolution um, falls apart, and the person goes back to the type of thinking that we had prior to language 50,000 years ago. Don't forget that hominins, or human-like animals, have been around for millions of years, six, seven million years. Language has only been around for 50,000. So I use the example, if you take three yardsticks, each representing two million years, so that's six million, Language has been around only for the last inch. And it's so much revolutionized our brain and how we use it, including dopamine suppression. Not everyone is on board yet. And those who are least on board, we call mentally ill. So before language, what was occurring to the, uh, to the brain when it came to dopamine before language? Was there, were there less mental illnesses because of that, in your opinion? No mental illness. There was zero. And I, my prediction is five to 10,000 years from now, there will again be no mental illnesses once we get through this uh, adjustment phase. How so? How, how in 5,000 years from now are we going to revert back to the primitive era? No, we're not going to revert back to the primitive era. But, you know, primitive man was involved basically day to day in a struggle for survival. He didn't have time to think about suicide he didn't learn language. He didn't suppress dopamine. So there was no uh, ability to desuppress it. He just spent his day surviving, scraping out a survival, finding food, hunting, gathering. So I don't believe there was mental illness prior to the onset of language. But we're in this, as I said, very new uh, evolutionary moment, and not everyone is on board with it yet. And it may take thousands of years for everyone to be on board with this new way of using our minds and suppressing dopamine. Once we get through this evolutionary moment, I don't think we'll see mental illness, at least as we define it today. 
so what does that look like to you in 5,000 years from now? There's, there's no longer a suppression of dopamine anymore just because of the way we evolve, the way we communicate with each other. And because of that, one factor alone, the, the lack of suppression of dopamine, all mental illnesses throughout the world will be exterminated? Well, what I'm saying is that, you know, at this point in time, as we go from childhood to uh, adolescence, we learn language, we learn conscious thought. And with that is the suppression of dopamine that also enhances our mind, it complexifies it. it uh, there's the establishment of an unconscious part of the mind with certain things are buried and gated out. All of that is a complex operation, and not everyone is on board with it yet. So what I'm saying is that 10,000 years from now, everyone will be on board with this process of dopamine suppression. There won't be people who fall back to the old ways, as it were, and desuppress dopamine. Now, we all use this primitive form of thinking when we're sleeping. Uh, dreams are an example of this primitive form of thinking. We see this primitive form of thinking, as I said, when people take psychedelics. They stimulate a serotonin 2A receptor, which I believe unleashes a massive desuppression of dopamine. In fact, the newer medications that we use to treat schizophrenia not only block dopamine, but they block this 2A uh, serotonin receptor that's involved with psychedelic use. So I think it all fits together pretty neatly and it's just a matter of time before everyone is going to be on board with this new configuration uh, of how we use our minds. Mm. It's hard to fathom what you're saying. It's really hard to, for someone like me who's not in this line of work to grasp how that alone and, and how we could all get on board. That, that to me also doesn't, I don't know how that translates. Does that just happen naturally, doctor? Is, does it happen through human behavior more so than spoken at that point? Well, it's the process of learning language. And at the same time, we're, we're in school, we're getting an education, we're learning to use conscious thought. Uh, hopefully we're getting uh, parental discipline and things like that. It all involves the suppression of dopamine so that when we arrive at adulthood, we use you know, adult thinking, which is reality-based. Freud called it the reality principle, whereas children don't use that. And when we dream, we don't use it. When we take psychedelics, we don't use it. But that's a process that we all go through. And most of us fix that in a way around the end of adolescence, uh, early, you know, late high school, early college. And that's precisely the moment when schizophrenia sets in for certain people who aren't as adept at suppressing dopamine or keeping it suppressed, and they're just more vulnerable to a desuppressive process. And every single mental illness we know involves this kind of dopaminergic desuppression. You've been a practicing board-certified psychiatrist since 1984. Right. And your specialty has been, one of your main specialties has been schizophrenia. And you've got a book. We'll link the book in the show notes. We want to get into some of this. So talk to us. What exactly, first and foremost, what does that mean, schizophrenia? What is that? Well, that's a good question. And uh, you know, just as a preamble, I'll say that when I did my residency in New York in, in the 80s, I was very disappointed in the explanations that the attending psychiatrist would give families whose family member had just been diagnosed with schizophrenia. 
the, the families would come in and say, well, what is schizophrenia? And all they would hear is, oh, it's a chemical imbalance, or it's genetics, or it's connectivity of the brain. There frankly has been no satisfying, in-depth explanation for schizophrenia since the one that I'm uh, offering has come along. And schizophrenia is a chronic mental illness. It's, it's there for a lifetime once it's diagnosed. It usually starts between the ages of 15 and 25, although there are exceptions. And it's initially characterized by uh, what we call positive symptoms, hearing voices, uh, talking delusionally, bizarre behavior, things like that. So imagine you're someone going through high school, you're doing pretty well, you have a small circle of friends, you're able to achieve academically. Suddenly, everyone starts treating you differently, like you're saying odd things. You're not aware of it, but everyone else around you can see that you're not paying as close attention to your appearance, you're not as interested in relating to others, and you start to say things like, you know, I hear a voice coming out of the vent, or, you know, the FBI has been tracking me, or there are satellites beaming noises into my head. You're puzzled by the responses of the outside world, when everyone else can see that something has definitely changed. And what has changed, according to my theory, is that the person has gone back to that primitive kind of thinking that existed prior to language, that we still see in young children, that we still experience in sleep and psychedelic users. How do they go back? What causes them to go back? Well, my theory is that certain people are more capable of remaining in that dopamine-suppressed state than others. If there's a vulnerability, and it may be a genetic vulnerability, or it may be environmental. We know there are some environmental things that increase your risk of schizophrenia, like uh, having an elderly father, being born in the winter months, urban upbringing as opposed to rural, uh, head trauma, uh, childhood abuse, all that increase the odds. And there are genetic things that increase the odds too. But whatever, if you're vulnerable to that circumstance, 1% of the population is going to regress back to that primitive uh, organization um, one way or another. And the interesting statistic there is that it's 1% of the population worldwide across all geopolitical, socioeconomic, and uh, uh, ethnic boundaries, which is not typical of a genetic illness, which is why I'm saying that this is not a genetic illness. It's a uh, an evolutionary glitch. I call mentally ill people evolutions uh, dispossessed. We're in a moment in evolution where this dopamine suppression just isn't fixed for everybody. So if, if I understand this, you're saying that these people revert back to a time where there was no language. Their brain reverts back thousands of years to, I mean, a, to, to a time where there was no language, but they are currently obviously operating in a state where there is language which has caused dopamine and so they're they're trying to fight off um they have nothing to protect them from this over saturation of dopamine is that fair that's right the desuppression of dopamine is a huge surge and that uh changes the mind to the point where there's no gating out of uh 
unwanted impulses and ideas, that releases a huge rush of energy that goes into what we call psychosis. And psychosis involves those symptoms of schizophrenia, like voices, delusions, visual hallucinations, uh, bizarre behavior. What is it about the brain at 15 to 25? That's the sweet spot. There's obviously outliers before and after. But why in that age range is there something about the brain that could experience the glitch at a, at a higher level? Well, I have theories about that. Two reasons. Number one, we spend the first 15 years or so of our lives learning language and accruing this ability to think, use conscious thought, deductive reasoning. But then we've mastered it and we kind of stop. And that kind of gives an opportunity for this primitive organization to reassert itself. And the other factor, I think, is that this primitive organization also needs to uh, mature cognitively as the brain does. Uh, you could call it a paleocortex. And so once it's mature around that time, it has the ability to, uh, in a sense, repossess the brain of the uh, individual whose dopamine is desuppressed. Mm. And these are my theories, not everyone's. So according to your theory, then, once this glitch occurs, there's no reversing it. Absolutely. Schizophrenia is a lifetime diagnosis, unlike major depression, unlike bipolar disorder. Well, bipolar disorder is a lifetime diagnosis, but they're cyclical. They come and go and will have periods of normalcy in between. Not so for schizophrenia. What look what is doctor, what is what does schizophrenia look like if untreated? 15, 20, 25, 30 into your adult life. What is that what can that become if you don't treat it properly? Well, initially it's going to be very uh dramatic uh change in thought process. And anytime there's a diagnosis of schizophrenia, functional expectations tend to go down. So schizophrenics often end up living in supportive group homes where their meals are supplied, they're given their medications. They may or may not hold a job. Uh, they may or may not marry. They often don't, often don't reproduce. But there is a group of what we call high-functioning I'm sorry, doctor. I just lost you for a second. Go ahead. There is a group of what they call high-functioning schizophrenics. And if you saw the movie A Beautiful Mind, Jonathan Nash was a schizophrenic who uh, got a Nobel Prize. Um, Ellen Sachs, who wrote a book, uh, The Center Cannot Hold, went to Oxford, went to Yale, all the time suffering from acute psychotic breaks. Uh, there are many other examples. So it's, it's variable. But on average, your life-functioning expectation goes down with the diagnosis of schizophrenia. Do you become more susceptible to violence, whether uh, uh, to yourself and or to others? Uh, schizophrenics are not mass murderers. They're not killers. They're not violent. They're pretty meek, mild people for the most part. They, are, they do have a higher rate of suicide. And a lot of times, once this primitive organization sets in, it attacks the ego, and these voices tell the person, you're worthless, kill yourself, take an overdose. And this relentless barrage of voices can be very difficult to resist. Fortunately, medication can help with that. But no, these are not 
mass murderers, killers. They're not infectious. They're not possessed by the devil. All kinds of theories that have arisen, primarily because we've had no good explanation for schizophrenia up until now. But a schizophrenic, him or herself, doesn't know that they have a problem, especially at the outset. As you say, they're hearing things, they're perceiving things, they're hearing voices from the vents. They believe that this is all true. Absolutely. So how so how to how do you get somebody in their young adult life to start realizing, hey, you may have this mental disorder that needs to be checked? Well, it's the phenomenon called anosognosia, that the patient can be utterly unaware of their illness. And uh, what usually happens, or often can happen, is first of all, medication is given, and they can start to see that their functioning is different on the medication and off. But that doesn't mean they're willing to take these medicines all the time or that they're not going to try to stop them. Even someone as smart as Ellen Sachs, like I said, went to Oxford and Yale. At least 10 times she stopped her medications to prove that she didn't need them, and every single time she relapsed in the psychotic break. So it can be very difficult to impart insight to a schizophrenic patient, but usually over time it does accrue. And if families can stick with them, they can help by reminding them, now don't you remember what happened when you went off your medication last time? And, and that gradually accrues a certain degree of insight, hopefully. How frustrating is it, doctor, the denial factor? I assume that you've seen this for many decades in your practice. When somebody comes in and they think that you, doctor, and the rest of the family is crazy and not them. Well, it's very frustrating. And uh, the worst thing about it is that their functioning you know, goes down and their symptoms go up. And there's also a concern that each time a schizophrenic has a relapse, their tendency to atrophy of the frontal lobe is greater. And you may see more and more atrophy, which is something that sets in in a lot of schizophrenics. But it's very difficult, even more difficult for families, because as psychiatrists, we expect it. And families will eventually kind of abandon their schizophrenic relative sometimes, and then uh, prognosis for that relative goes down. The patients who do best are the ones whose families can hang in there, and it's not easy, but stick with them and work with them. And I will say that uh, psychiatric medicine has provided long-acting injectable medications that can prevent the uh, patient from just saying, well, I'm not taking my pills today. Now we have two-week-long injectables, one-month-long, three-month-long, and even a six-month-long injectable medication so that once it's given, the patient doesn't have to think, you know, oh, I'm not really ill. They've got that medicine on board, and it helps. Mm. Well, you speak about family support, and you mentioned earlier parental guidance, some things that, that really are important. Uh, throughout, so, you know, when somebody may be suffering from any kind of personal mental disorder or personality disorder. Um, so that leads me to pivot to the recent case with uh, Crumley. And Jennifer Crumley, the mother of, uh, what was his name? The shooter from uh, from Michigan, uh, you know, Ethan. the high school. Ethan? Yeah. Okay. So just yesterday, um, the verdict came out. Jennifer Crumbly, the mother has been convicted for involuntary manslaughter uh, for the murders of four students that occurred at Oxford in Michigan several years ago because her, I think he was 15 year old, 15 years old at the time. 
her son took a gun um, that the parents had bought him for him and went into the school and killed several people. Uh, there clearly wasn't great parental guidance and, and family support there. Talk to us. What's your thoughts overall, doctor, about what you think Ethan may have been experiencing? And then, of course, your outcome on the verdict. Well, it's a complex case, but, you know, if you look at the age of onset around age 15, if you look at the symptoms that were reported, hearing voices, seeing demons in the house, uh, saying bizarre things, saying uh, thoughts were so intrusive, he was begging for help. Um, this adds up to a pretty clear picture of schizophrenia. And uh, what seems to have happened is that the parents were kind of tone deaf to this and just kind of poo-pooed it. In fact, I even heard today that when he was complaining of hallucinations, they locked him out of the house uh, as a punishment. So they, they just did not seem to be uh, savvy enough to see this as a mental health issue. And of course, the father went so far as to buy him a gun, even though he was drawing pictures showing people being shot and bleeding and had fantasies of kidnapping people. So there just seemed to be a huge disconnect between the parental observation of what was going on and what really was going on. I'm not a lawyer. I don't know what to say about the verdict, but I certainly think that the mother contributed to that by uh, her lack of behavior, lack of bringing this uh, boy to, uh, to a psychiatrist. And uh, it, it's hard to really understand why they did that. You know, I guess they're paying a price for them. So you're so the the son had mental issues. People were saying you got to take a look at this. He's having some kind of psychotic breaks. He's painting pictures of people dying and drawing pictures and killing and shooting. And then the dad buys him a gun. What's the what was the justification for for purchasing his son a gun? Or do you not know? I don't know. Uh, it sounded like it was a Christmas present. Uh, it seems that's like a pretty twisted Christmas present, don't you think? Very twisted, especially in light of the things that were going on. It was kind of a uh, bizarre twist. And uh, well, okay, here's something you really want. We'll buy this for you. Maybe that'll help you feel better. It ended up in wow. trouble. So, you know, these parents certainly are not the typical parents who are clued into their offspring. So, what could they have done? I mean, this is a a very simple question, but what are some of the things that they could have done differently? I mean, the first thing would have been not locking your son out of the house when he's telling you he's having hallucinations to punish him. I could only imagine that that exacerbated the problem. Right. Absolutely. And I guess part of it was that they were so uninvolved with him that he was basically totally adrift. But for any family who has a son or daughter, that starts saying, I'm hearing voices, you know, take them to a psychiatrist. It doesn't absolutely mean that they're schizophrenic because there are normal kids who, who can hear voices. But take them to a psychiatrist for evaluation to get an assessment of how serious this is. And then if other symptoms accumulate, like you notice they're withdrawing from everybody, they seem alienated from everyone, they're not uh, paying attention to their appearance, they talk about odd things like, you know, the government is persecuting me. Uh, you really need to pay attention and uh, take your kid for evaluation. 
And uh, that can be as simple as the psychiatrist saying, don't worry about this, let's just keep an eye on it. Or saying, well, let's see if some therapy can help. Or actually prescribing medication. I think medication uh, early on would have done wonders for Ethan Crumley. Just didn't happen. Give us, uh, without, of course, giving any names, but, but just a, a sad case that you've seen where the issue wasn't handled properly and just spiraled out of control with maybe a patient that you've seen over the last several decades. Is there something where it got so bad? Um, and if it did, what does that look like for that person as they are kind of all by themselves and abandoned? Well, uh, I can't go into any specific case, but I think that uh, families have a very difficult time accepting the diagnosis. Uh, not quite as difficult as the patient, but they... So you're, you're suggesting, I'm sorry, doctor, you're suggesting it's, it's maybe not as hard, but it's pretty darn hard for even a parent or a loved one to say, yeah, my, my child's suffering from this disease. Right, and they may turn to all other kinds of doctors or people who think they can offer solutions uh, just to try to... Uh, get a different diagnosis, just like someone who has cancer and doesn't want to believe it either. But um, the best thing you can do is listen to the child, interact with them, be present for them, and uh, have a great relationship with them, as supportive as possible. And uh, hopefully that will help you make decisions about when to take them in for an evaluation. There's nothing wrong with taking a child in for evaluation. But but is it is it as dire as what we've seen maybe in TV and movies where the person is lonely, they're in their 50s, maybe 60s, and they're completely gone? They've had a million psychotic breaks. They've never been treated properly, and they're sitting there literally talking to their walls? Uh, I don't see it often getting to that point. You know, schizophrenia is a pretty dramatic illness, and at some point, they're going to be brought either to an emergency room or to a psychiatrist. Like if you read the book uh, Mind Estranged by Bethany Isaac, she was at a high-level university when her schizophrenia set in, and suddenly she left the dormitory and started living as a homeless person a few blocks away in a church. And this went on for years until she started hearing voices telling her to act like a bird and flap her arms and scream. And once she got the notice of, you know, pedestrians and the police who brought her into an emergency room and she got medicated against her will, suddenly she got the insight to realize that something needed to change, that she wasn't functioning the way she used to. So it can take a while, but it rarely gets to the point where they live an entire life with schizophrenia un with no intervention. What Prince of Schizophrenia? You teased somebody else's book, but we're not going to talk about yours. Footprints of Schizophrenia, The Evolutionary Roots of Mental Illness. We've linked it in the show notes here. Um, you say that uh, uh, that it says Stephen Lesk um, presents a groundbreaking theory that will forever change the lives of the mentally ill. How so? Well, like I said, uh, there really is no other complete, satisfying explanation of schizophrenia. And this one, I think, if you read it, it's kind of like buying a car. If you sit in it and drive it around, I think you'll find it very comfortable, very satisfying, and it's what we need. It will reduce stigma. You know, there's so little understanding of schizophrenia that other people come up with 
bizarre uh, rationales for why someone is acting this way. They're possessed by the devil, they're contagious, their brain is rotting. So this will offer a satisfying explanation and hopefully change our research goals a little bit. I mean, we are so focused on genetics. I think we have to broaden our horizons research-wise. And I also hope to involve more people in the profession of psychiatry. A lot of psychiatrists are content to just say, well, eventually the researchers will come up with an answer. We all have to be involved in figuring these things out. And uh, I think that will be groundbreaking and beneficial uh, for schizophrenics. You know, it's 1% of the population. How often do you hear someone talking about schizophrenia? Uh, not much. Uh, I'm, I'm shocked. I'm shocked the number's that big. It's huge. It's 3.5 million in this country alone. Uh, who talks about it? Nobody. Mm. It's because of stigma. You know, it's hush-hush. It's, it's uh, there's shame. But there shouldn't be. These are wonderful people. They don't really understand what's happened to them. And now they will. And, and you're makes, saying with proper with proper treatment and proper medication, they could leave, lead a fairly normal life still. Yeah, they can have satisfying lives. Some of them will be superstars. Now, most will be a little less functional than they were. That's the other thing. We need better medications. The best medicine we have for schizophrenia has so many side effects and requires a weekly blood test that no one wants to go on it. But for those who have gone on it, like Bethany Eiser, uh, Ellen Sachs, and others. It, it, it is really the best thing we have. So we have to find medications that work better, that work that we can reliably use. You know, a medication that helps one person is completely inoperative for another, and we don't know how. It's trial and error. What so, medication is that, doctor, that you had just referenced, the best that we have currently? Clozapine. It's a fabulous medication. We don't exactly know why. But it was the very first of what we call the atypical antipsychotics. And what it does, other than the earlier ones, is to block that serotonin 2A receptor that's involved with psychedelics. So it not only blocks dopamine, which all the antipsychotics must do, but it blocks this 2A receptor. But there's even something more about it because we've developed other atypicals that don't quite match its uh, record in helping people. Mm. But there's too many side effects. They, patients gain weight, they may drool, they uh, feel sedated from these medications, they can have muscle stiffness, restlessness, and something called tardive dyskinesia, which is a permanent disfiguring kind of motor uh, illness, uh, involuntary movements of the mouth and tongue and lips. So all these things go on. We need to do better. And I think my theory will help us move forward a bit. Extremely interesting stuff. Dr. Stephen Lesk, uh, you can find him at stephenleskmd.com. That's also been linked in the show notes. Fascinating stuff. Uh, wishing you continued success with the book. Any Anywhere else you want people to find you online, social, et cetera? Uh, LinkedIn, and they can buy the book on barnesandnoble.com, amazon.com, Footprints of Schizophrenia. Um, take a look at it. I think you'll be rewarded if you do Thanks so much, Doctor. Really appreciate it. Thank you very much.